Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the surreal films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are talking about another Rinth's Dream, a.k.a. Steven Syedian film, 1989's Dr. Caligari. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, you can find 1989's Dr. Caligari, not on streaming, but with some creative searching, you can find it on archive.org. Yeah, I don't think, I think the last release of this was VHS. I don't think this got an official release since then. You're telling me this classic never made it off of a VHS cassette ever? I don't think it did. No, let me check real quick, actually, because I'm kind of curious. I have a DVD, but I think it's a bootleg. Yeah, no. Last only release is on VHS. Great. It can hurt less people that way. (laughs) All right. We're probably going to disagree on this one, uh, just like we disagreed on Cafe Flesh. But... um, how how did this feel in comparison to you? Like, could you tell it was the same? It's the same artist. No, if you didn't tell me that this was a wrench dream film, I I would have I wouldn't have pegged it at all. Really? Because I think his visual his visual style is so idiosyncratic. Like, I think it's immediately recognizable. Yeah, uh, I don't know about all that, but. I just kind of expected every Rent's Dream film to be like three layers of softcore porn wrapped around like a half-baked sci-fi story. And this movie is not very pornographic. No. Um, So this was Steven Syedian's only non-porn film. Uh, My understanding is a producer basically gave him $200,000 and said... You can have this to make a movie with, but it has to be about Dr. Caligari. And this is what came about. What kind of stipulation is that? <laughs> I don't know. But I let let's not get too much into to Rent Stream, Steven Syedi in this episode for a couple reasons. One, go back and listen to the uh, the Cafe Flesh episode where we talk about him a lot more. But also everyone should listen to Laser Graves, our our podcast friend, Laser Graves, um, who did an episode on this. And they go a lot more into the backstory of like the different actors and talking about Steven Syedian. And if you're at all interested in this movie, I really recommend people go check it out but um we should probably talk about jerry stahl who was the co-writer on this um he also co-wrote cafe flesh and some of um rinse dreams other early work uh but he's best known for writing some episodes of alf and twin peaks which episodes of twin peaks the ones where actually interesting shit happens Let's see. He directed season two, episode four, Laura's Secret Diary, which I actually think was a great episode, if I remember it correctly. But yeah, so my understanding of the writing process, and this is, um, I learned this from Laser Graves, is that basically Stephen Syedian would tell um, Jerry Stahl, like, here's what I want the character to say. 
And then Jerry Stahl would translate it into what he called dream talk, which is the way the characters speak in this movie. And to a lesser extent, um, they speak that way in Cafe Flesh, too. But the, the dialogue is very unique. What did you think of it? Either the first or second best thing of the film, just because it is very oddly worded. It almost sounds like um, like slam poetry, but like under the influence of something. Yeah. Let Can we just play a brief snippet of it here so people hear what we're talking about? Because I don't think many people have seen this movie. You enjoy shock therapy. I like the tingle. Juice me, I'm a shiver boy. I got secret needles in my pokey globe. So before we go further, I just want to say that I I appreciate the amount of effort it takes to deliver both a performance and dialogue of this style. It's just not for me. I don't enjoy watching it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I can definitely see how someone would not like this. I do. I really appreciate it both visually and the dialogue, but I tend to like anything that's unique and distinctive and that someone could adhere to stylistically. Like I like David Mamet a lot for that reason and Quentin Tarantino and other writers that, you know, as soon as you hear their dialogue, you know who that is. And I think this is the same way. But that actor we just heard, John Durbin, um, he's still working today. He's one of the only actors in this that like remained a professional actor. Um, he got his career. He started in um, Return of the Living Dead. He plays one of the he plays one of the zombies. Uh, so that's pretty cool. What did you think of his? Like, did you think he in particular stood out? I, I, you know, I think the, both of these characters are the standouts of the film. Both, both this guy and Doctor Caligari herself. That that is Doctor Caligari, right? Yep. Okay. Um, I think they are. They're both the standout characters of this film. So I really like Laura Albert, who plays Mrs. Van Houten, but we'll talk about her in a minute. Um, Dr. Caligari is played by Madeline Raynal, who was only in two movies, this and Space Mutiny. Which is kind of surprising. Yeah, um, wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I would I I think her performance is really I, I mean, iconic is probably going too far, but it's very distinctive. Yeah. It, what what would Cleopatra or how would Cleopatra run an insane asylum? <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's the vibe she throws off. She has like that Egyptian hair thing. Well, like the Hollywood Egyptian hair. Right. But Mrs. Van Houten, who's our other... Basically, this movie, um, Dr. Caligari is the granddaughter of Dr. Caligari from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the 1920 film. And... Um, she's running an insane asylum and she has two patients that the movie really focuses on. One is the guy we just heard and he's a cannibal serial killer. And then the other is Mrs. Van Houten. And she is, has been committed by her husband because she's a nymphomaniac. 
she's played by Laura Albert, who is also still working, but she's primarily a stunt actress. I think she does a great job here, though. Like, a great job for avant-garde nonsense, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, that's fair. You really think it's just nonsense, though? It, this stuff isn't for me. It has a very, like, art house, midnight theater production, like, avant-garde, New York underground type feel to it. Yeah. For me. It's, it's, not my, it's not my scene. I want to mention one other actress, Jennifer Miro. She's the woman who says, chinchilla, 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 every time she comes on screen. Yeah. She was in another movie we covered. She was the woman on the TV set in The Video Dead. I feel like somewhere there's like a seven degrees we can do after so many episodes. Yeah, I feel like we need to call attention to it, though. Like, it feels like it needs to be marked when it happens. It's like Just all... Say, I, I would not have known that if you didn't tell me, though. Like, they, these characters have nothing in common. I, I don't even remember what the woman on the TV set looks like. Yeah, well, she looked like this woman. <laughs> Jennifer <laughs> Miro. Well, like, I guess in this movie, she's not black and white, and and she's, like, screaming chinchilla in this film constantly. Yeah. How did you feel about the chinchillas? Uh, it's kind of like uh, some early 2000s humor. So this was kind of groundbreaking for 1989. Yeah, I don't even know if it's trying to be humorous. Like, I don't really know what it what it's trying to be. Well, she's crazy. So she's saying chinchilla. Right. But I mean, the, like, how would you describe the tone of the movie as a whole, though? I think you summed it up like two minutes ago, like art house midnight play production. And then someone let a cameraman in <laughs> like that's 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 this entire movie's runtime. I mean, visually, this movie is really cool to me. So it combines the German expressionism of the original Dr. Caligari with this sort of avant garde um, theater set design that. I mean, for $200,000, I think they made an amazing looking film. I'm suspecting most of that money went towards the actors, as it probably should have. Um, these, these sets are like simple, right? Because they're all on like all black sound stages. Everything is just like strangely cut out, non-functional furniture and background, like dioramas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is amazing they managed to pull this film off for that much money. But I I can see how they were able to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just think there's an there's an admirable amount of creativity on display that I'm drawn to that like gets me interested. It doesn't really matter what the movie's about. Like <laughs> If if it looks like this and it sounds like this, I'm at least going to be interested because there's I, I feel like there's so much artistry on display. But anyhow, let's play the trailer. And then, I mean, on the one hand, I don't think we can walk through this plot. But on the other, I don't know how else to tackle this movie except to just talk about the things that appear on screen. 
there's a there's an actual plot there's yeah you know despite every like disjointed thing in this movie there is a cohesive plot i'm i kind of struggled to say cohesive but it's there sure there's a lot of there's a lot of cogs missing out of this machine but you can tell what it was made to do yeah i agree with that all right let's hear the trailer Every so often, there comes a movie so sick, so twisted, so incredibly insane, the critics shout, Oscar calling, Oscar calling. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Unending torment. Meet Dr. Caligari. She's chic. She's hip. She's morally reprehensible. She's evil. She's a flat-out sadist. Sex Nazi. How do I make you feel? My feelings are like filthy prayers. I'm a juice dog. I'm a twitching skinny ball, and you won't let me shiver. Bon appetit. She's the granddaughter of the infamous Dr. Caligari. To her, your brain's an open house. You've got to learn to just say yes. The critics cheered when Dr. Caligari took the midnight movie circuit by storm. Perhaps I should prescribe a sedative for you. This movie screams art. I got an EKG you can dance to. Everybody limbo. The L.A. Times stamped its approval. Consistently outrageous and imaginative. I call it disgusting. I'm on a radiation vacation soaking up the gammas. Funny thing about desire. If it's not crude, it's not pure. On college campuses, she's the new homecoming queen. She's got style. She's got class. She's got people talking everywhere. Excitement's the essence of life. When it's over, you're dead. She's racy, irreverent, and radical. Dr. Caligari, the twisted passions of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the all-consuming hunger of eating Raul, and the outrageous excess of pink flamingos. Describe your life in three words or less. She's the surrealistic psychiatrist with the totally camp couch, Dr. Caligari. She's got the cure for midnight madness. Surprise! Oh, you're gonna savor this. Now that that was quite possibly the most traditional and uh, terrible trailer we have we have watched for any of these films. Yeah, it's awful. What episode are we on? Uh, I don't even know. I don't even know what episode this is. Um, this is episode eighty-three. Okay, so we've done like eighty-three of these. That was the worst trailer. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But anyhow, my favorite set in this movie is the one that we pretty much open on that looks like a, like a nuclear wasteland and there's a woman sitting in the middle of it watching a TV. Before we even get into this, can we talk about the original? Sure. So we both watched the original this week and for Leland, it was the first time. So what do you want to say about the original? Oh, we we just we need we just need to to acknowledge that it exists, that it came out before this film, and that this is somehow a sequel. I mean, I think that the only way this really relates to the first one is that she's supposedly his granddaughter, and the set design with the like weird German expressionist angles. Other than that, this really doesn't have anything to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Great. I'm glad we got that out of the way. Were you upset by that? I 
just kept wondering the whole time why this wasn't just its own bizarre art house thing and why it was piggybacking off a German expressionist film from like 60 years before this. I will say there's, I, I don't know if they got this from the original Dr. Caligari or not, but there's a part near the end of the first Caligari where Caligari himself becomes a patient at the hospital. And the same thing happens in this movie where Dr. Caligari ultimately ends up like a patient. And I thought that that parallel was cool. Sure, but the entire story of the first movie is a giant fabrication. Right. Like, it didn't even happen. But then is... I guess you can kind of question whether anything anything has or should have or will have happened in the movie we're, we're talking about now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... Nothing about this movie screams reality to me, right? Like, I'm totally happy to enter some sort of uh, weird pseudo-sequel world uh, to a story that never even happened. Right. So um, if you have not seen the original, to just run by really quick, the entire movie is basically a flashback told from the perspective of a guy He's talking to another guy on a park bench and it details how this is even established. He's actually a doctor, whatever. This guy goes by the name Dr. Caligari has procured himself a somnambulist who um, he basically hypnotizes into murdering people either for no reason or to draw attention to his sideshow where he has the somnambulist and other freaks because the somnambulist will call out who's going to get murdered during a like soothsaying show like a tent or some shit yeah so it's supposed to be like he tells the future and then he makes the future happen Ooh, right your future told and the whole thing ends with the doctor being exposed as he was actually getting his freak show patients from an insane asylum he was running. And then he becomes very quickly um, deterred there as a patient because it his diary is uncovered where... This is so fucking weird. There's a diary uncovered that basically outlined this entire plan because some other guy did the same exact thing and Dr. Caligari wanted to relive what this man had done. <laughs> but then after Dr. Caligari is committed to the insane asylum, it's revealed that the main character and the person he's talking to on the park bench are not actually in a park. They are in the insane asylum too. They are patients in the courtyard and um, it is very clear that the perspective of the main character is very flawed, that this never happened. And uh, he is um, he, he kind of has like an emotional episode and is put into a cell. The end it this I, I would suspect that this was probably one of the first twist endings in cinema. I think it was the first. Yeah. So um, 
from from today's standards, very pedestrian, but um, probably iconic for anyone who's like a cinematic historian. There are people who interpret it as being um, basically an allegory for for Germany after World War One, and like having the desire for a strong man character to basically lull Germany into a state of passivity and take control. And um, that the ending is either ironic or is like a cop out or maybe is an attempt to really be in to indict this idea. Um, but there's a lot of interesting analysis out there about uh, cabinet of Dr. Caligari that um, if you're into like people should, do the research so then we have this film which i was just informed was only a sequel pseudo sequel spiritual successor of sorts only because the guy who funded the movie said it had to be <laughs> and i'm assuming we will never find out anything else on that matter right we just don't know I don't know. There are interviews out there with Steven Saadian about this film. I know he's been on some podcasts and things like I didn't do a lot of research on him, um, but it, there might be a deeper explanation out there. So the only things in common that at least I picked up on between the two films is um, set design. Um, there's there's a mental asylum in both movies. And the name Caligari is in both films. And that is where the similarities stop. Yeah. Before we move on from Cabinet, just out of curiosity, what would your star rating be? You mean like the, the 1920s one? Yeah. Oh, it was okay, I guess. I mean, very dated. I mean, it's a silent film. Right. Right? I don't know. It was two stars? I don't know. It was okay. Uh, I I mean, it's hard because if I'm gauging its impact on film, it would be four stars. Oh, yeah, for sure. Probably. But I'm talking about like now through the lens of the year of our Lord 2023. Yeah. TikTok and uh, uh, Facebook and, and Pornhub and streaming YouTube videos like, you know, when you have all that shit going on and like PlayStation 5. And then you go back, you look at like a silent film from 1920, right? It's it's kind of it's kind of hard to compare, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it has, I think it has its own charm and its own impact. Like, I just think it's a totally different medium, right? It's like poetry versus prose. It's just its own thing. Silent film. I'm not a huge fan. I don't sit down and watch silent films often, but I can appreciate what they are, what they're trying to do. I've only seen like a handful of silent films like ever. I only think I've I've seen more than five. Yeah, I haven't seen a ton. But anyhow, let's get back to tonight's movie. Isn't it great when you get to see like two characters on screen like pretending to talk to each other? And then a fucking cue card pops up and you have to read it at like an eighth grade reading level speed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. It is uh, It is a rather slow, tedious speed. 
But anyhow, so we see Mrs. Van Houten. She's sitting in the middle of this expanse of nothingness. And uh, she's watching, I think, herself on TV. There's also this like sore, this like pus sore that sort of rotates to different places. I'm like just considering how difficult it's going to be to describe any of this film through audio only to people who have not seen this. Yeah, it it is. It's really hard to describe. If you haven't seen this, you one, I think you should. But two, it, it's going to be hard to translate. Everything is dark. Everything is either on a black soundstage or in a room with almost no lighting. And then the things that you can't see are like neon fucking yellow and orange and green and purple. <laughs> I think everyone wears either yellow or pink. Like this is a movie where the main doctor who looks like, you know, Hollywood Cleopatra wears like fucking metal, like armor breastplates over her breasts. Like I'm not talking about like straight up armor. I'm talking about like like metal cups. This room that this patient is in doesn't look like it's in an asylum. It doesn't even look like it's on earth, right? It she's supposed to be inside a building, but it's a swamp. Like there's vines, there's flowers, there's plants. Um she's in front of a fucking bog. Like there's water and like shit floating in it. Yeah, and she's watching herself on TV. And the and she, she's wearing only a towel, <laughs> and I'm, I'm talking. About this is like a CRT TV with like the rabbit ear antennas. But even for like 1989, this was an old ass TV. This was probably like a 40 year old TV. It's very. It, it there are like atomic space age influences on the set. I think, and I think it's supposed to look like a fifties TV. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the fifties hadn't happened yet in the original Caligari, so um, that's that's this that's Rince Dreams' like signature touch, adding that that aesthetic. But, but yeah, we. So yeah, she's watching. This black and white television where a doctor maybe it's a doctor he at least looks like one he's wearing a lab coat maybe that's all you need that's all the qualifications you need in this film to be a doctor apparently and uh, he lifts up this woman's leg where there's just this weeping sore on it and he squeezes it and it pusses fucking fluid everywhere and he like brings her high heel shoe foot up to his mouth and kisses it <laughs> And that's when our our main character looks down and sees the same exact sore on her on her leg. And you might be thinking, like, what significance does this have to the rest of the film? And it doesn't. It has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. The next like five minutes that revolve around this leg sore never come back. It doesn't fuel into her to the reason she's there, right? Like nymphomania, which we're not even aware of yet at this point of the film. Like none of it ever comes back. That this, this this basically sums up the pacing for the entire film where everything is like a self-contained like set piece disaster 
that really has no bearing on the rest of the film. Although there is an overbearing plot where Miss Van, Mrs. Van Hoyten's journey through the asylum is actually something you can follow. It's just all the background shit is random. It's early 2000s random is the best way I can put it. Well, the woman on the TV says, I really like this. She says, am I your sex dream or a whole new me? And then Mrs. Van Hoyten masturbates in front of the TV while she watches herself flick her tongue at the camera. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind that before this happens, she decides to take a bath, but then a strange person wearing a giant baby mask emerges from the bathtub with a straight razor and maybe kind of kills her <laughs> and then has sex with her in a dark hallway. <laughs> To those who have not seen this movie, like, this is what we're talking about. It's hard to describe. So we can't possibly cover every scenario like that, right? Because the whole movie is full of this shit. Yeah, no, we can't. Um, basically, Mr. Van Hoyten calls Dr. Caligari because his wife is having, I think he calls it, a an episode but apparently she was under dr caligari's treatment before and now she's relapsing with her nymphomania i know i'm not alone they pick my bones they sniff their fingers they howl for god's sake she's raving you got me into this doctor they plant things in my louis vuitton valise while you sleep they inject things the libido patrol Regulating, you only think you sleep. Calm down, sweetheart. Mr. Snakeface, Mr. Pig Snout, don't give me tender, tender. You want fresh. Now, precious, we're having a little relapse. Don't worry, everything's going to be all right. See that face and I'm a love slut. Uh-huh. You bastard. You lovely, lovely bastard. I I just realized that she does not start this film in the asylum, but the room that she's watching the television on is in the asylum. I just got the like the way I imagined it was this is like a post-apocalyptic wasteland where everything is just black and covered in the green algae stuff. And so there's different locations that kind of look the same because everything looks like this. No, it's the same thing. The same plants are in the background, same everything. I mean, obviously it's not supposed to be, but it be. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can apply that sort of temporal logic to the film. No, there there is a temporal logic to this film. Things happen in an order, right? Like, there's no there's no time fuckery. Every, everything takes place in a straight line. But before we get to the the plot, like what happens next, there's a couple of set pieces I want to talk about real quick. One is where her husband gets stuck in the TV, and she makes out with a giant pulsating flesh wall with a massive tongue. Yeah, that's the best part of the film. You think that's the best part of the film? Yeah, that giant prop is awesome. <laughs> is that why you liked it? Because of the prop? 
Yeah, so like the the first thing you could probably say is the most distinctive best part of the film is like the really off the cuff dialogue. The second would be that giant flesh wall. I also like the scene where she tries to give a scarecrow a blowjob, but all she can find is straw. <laughs> I found that really funny. Doesn't her like her hand dissolve or some shit? She she reaches her whole hand like past his zipper, and when she pulls it out, it's all burnt. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Caligari says, burnt flesh always reminds me of something. (laughs) But besides these two patients, the basic story is that there's a director who's in charge of the insane asylum. Dr. Caligari is just like the main doctor. And he has two children, I think. I think they're his daughter and son who are basically trying to work around Dr. Caligari because they think correctly that she's insane and she's just out to experiment on the patients and she's not actually trying to help anybody. They're like the most normal people in the movie. You would think that this woman's husband would be the most normal person, but no, it's these two. They're they're like the most normal, unsuspecting people of the film. Maybe maybe that's a good thing because the... There needs to be some kind of a grounded character, right? I guess so. I mean, they're perceptive enough to know what's going on, but I guess you have to be pretty normal to, like, look at Dr. Caligari and say, yeah, that's not in the best interest of the patients. So sometime after all of this, uh, Mr. Van Hoyten, Lester, his name is Lester, Lester comes to see his wife And Dr. Caligari is not happy about this. She invites him to have morning coffee with her. And she gives him a lump of sugar and a lump of something else that I guess is like a poison. For five happy years, my wife and I had a normal sex life in accordance with church values. Now I wake up at 4.15. She's buck naked and squawking for Sinatra. She wants me to pretend I'm Frankie Jr. Well, I'm not. I'm not. And I never will be. Mr. Van Houten, you're married to a very disturbed woman. A week ago, Tuesday, we were so happy. She was whipping up an apple brown Betty. Then the world fell in. How's that coffee? Huh? Oh, it's fine. Fine. Mr. Van Houten. Less, please. Less. Do you mind if I probe you? I beg your pardon? How does talking about your wife's orgasms make you feel? Getting a little hot in here, or is it me? I hadn't noticed. I don't suppose you have a problem you'd like to discuss. Can you uh, open a window? I'm suff- suffocating. I'm beginning to get the impression you don't know how to satisfy your wife. I think I'm going to faint. So Dr. Caligari, he starts to hallucinate, and she locks him in a cell with his wife. And one of her hands turns into like a, a sort of mutant phallic dildo thing that she uses to fuck him in the ass. Yes. Before this, um, the, the doctor makes him eat half of a birthday cake that's bleeding. Yeah, it's like pulsating. It looks really cool. <laughs> so the 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 what are they the the children of the director? Are they nurses? Are they assistants? Do they have a role? They seem like they were like investigators. 
but maybe they're just very personally invested in making sure that um, the patients of the asylum are being treated well and just weren't um, just weren't very appreciative of Dr. Caligari's efforts. But it seems like a lot of what's going on in this in this movie isn't just because of Dr. Caligari, right? Like there's some very serious systemic issues going on at this asylum. Oh, and for sure. Like laying everything to blame on her is kind of a cop out, but they seem to believe so. They seem to believe it's all her. So they have made it their their like sanctified mission to bring her down, to bring her to justice. But the director is not really on their side. He he doesn't believe that Dr. Caligari is capable of such um, medical malfeasance. Yeah, no, he's firmly in her corner. He's like, she is staying. And while they're having an, uh, this, this argument about whether she's going to stay or not, a package arrives in the mail. It's, uh, it's one of those big eye paintings, like a person with big eyes. And it has a note. Roses are red. Violets are blue trotters are tasty what about you and i love this line the the daughter says caligari's so obvious the mind of a shoplifter (laughs) (laughs) it's so good so good but uh you want to talk about the sheep trotters that they eat you know i just got done saying that these were like the most normal people but yeah, they're just straight up eating raw sheep legs. Yeah, at one point, uh, the guy is like, let me take a little off the top. And he takes a razor out and like buzzes off some of the wool and then resumes eating. But there's multiple scenes where people eat trotters. That's what they call them in the movie, trotters. Yeah. and But immediately after this first uh, trotter dining, um, things take like a very nightmarish turn where um, the trotters like almost got revenge. They were haunting this woman in her, in her nightmare. Like he started seeing sheep feet like pound through a fucking refrigerator door to get to her. Oh man, I forgot about that. There's too much in this movie. You can't remember all of it. No. But when Lester wakes up, he's tied up in some sort of weird doll outfit. And Dr. Caligari is demonstrating for him her new invention, which is she's basically swapping some of the the juices from Mrs. Van Houten's brain into Mr. Pratt's. He's the cannibal and vice versa. And so Mrs. Van Houten starts talking like Mr. Pratt. She calls it hypothalamus interfacing amidst this explanation the director shows up and i guess this is when he realizes for the first time that she is insane well yeah it's because he sees that um, lester is tied up in the same bog room as these two and he knows for a fact that lester is an outstanding the sane member of society and does not deserve to be a patient here so clearly something is amiss. Yeah. And uh, the newly cannibalistic Mrs. Van Houten says she just has to have his earlobes. And he gets strapped down and they put like a 
Dr. Caligari puts like a little metal orifice in their forehead, and that's how they get their brain juices swapped. So she's going to give him an injection from Mrs. Van Houten. And once she does, he's like, well, now I'm Babs. And he becomes like a whole new personality. He transitions. <laughs> yeah. Did, is this movie uh, ahead of its time in trans representation? Well, it, this definitely didn't seem like a uh, a voluntary thing. No. No, so I don't think there's really anything empowering about this. No, I agree. Yeah. No. But I think Mr. Pratt says this. There's a there's a scene here where Mr. Pratt has a great like extended monologue um and he talks to himself with multiple personalities and at some point he says there are some states of being for which there are no names because the people who experience them don't come back. And I just I thought that was a fantastic line. There is so much otherworldly dialogue that I don't even remember that line. I, you can't keep track of it all, especially with just one viewing. Yeah, this is a movie. I mean, assuming you enjoy it, this is a movie that it rewards multiple viewings. Um, because every time I've only seen it a handful of times and, um, every time I noticed like something new and there's so much new to notice. And so it, it rewards repeated viewings, but this all turns into like an extended nightmare sequence where both of the cannibals, Mrs. Van Houten and Mr. Pratt are pursuing Mr. Van Houten, who's like running and screaming and, Meanwhile, Babs, the former director, is like going down on Dr. Caligari. And this is when his daughter shows up and like she doesn't understand this change in personality. Ramona, be a doll. Take some Polaroids, will you? I want to remember this moment. Why? Why? Were you lonely, Daddy? What has she done to you, Daddy? Ramona, did I ever tell you I do a mean can can? What say? No, please. This can't be happening. I know, I know. Our little Babs just can't control herself. Ramona, be my very own personal love goddess. My very own Princess Di. Your father loves you. What a fortunate child you are. Sweetie, the only duty we have in history is to be writers. Dad, I'm getting you out of here. Babs, if you love me, you'll call me Babs. Hey, Dad, listen to me. Babs, Babs, Babs. All right, That's all right. my very special name. What do you think of Babs, Ramona? Perhaps a tuck here, a tuck there, a couple of sessions of electrolysis. I'm taking you home. You just want to trick me. Bad knows. If you let me inflate your nays, I'll be your hamper girl for good. <laughs> so yeah, what'd you think of Babs? Well, obviously nowadays it's terribly insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> you really think to, like to I don't think mildly, so. To put it mildly. It doesn't strike me that way. It strikes me the way drag strikes me. Uh this goes beyond, I mean, performance-wise, it's drag, but conceptually, 
there's something being changed on a fundamental cerebral level in, in Babs's brain to, to change their entire identity into this shape, this form. But it's ultimately like a caricature of like someone who may assume, you know, an identity like this to fulfill like some sort of um, like fulfillment, right? I this, think there's no, there, but there's nothing voluntary here. Yeah, but I don't know. I think it's too silly to find offensive. Oh, uh, I don't find it offensive, obviously. I mean, I'm also not the audience to offend here. But I think um, now this this would be seen as being just a tad insensitive. I don't know. It doesn't strike me that way. It strikes me as like in all in good fun, sort of like it's it's it strikes me as a drag performance. Um, and it, yeah, there is a context of it being involuntary, but it's a it's a quote unquote horror movie like of course, there's going to be horrific things that happen in it. Like that doesn't that doesn't by definition make them offensive to me. Ah, so it's transitioning is horrific then. Well, no, but having it done involuntarily to you is. Yeah, it would. I mean, having any sort of like uh, psychological manipulation, anything that involves brain fuckery, goes into that category. I agree. And let's not forget that it, the problem here isn't that he's now transitioned. It's that it's an insane nymphomaniac that he, he's been injected with. Like, there's a degree of insanity here that I think is the important part. So, hey, why doesn't uh, Mrs. Van H Horton? Houghton? Houghton. Why, why doesn't Mrs. Van Houghton turn into, um, like something more like male identifying when she gets uh you know male cannibal juice put into her brain i don't know dr caligari says something about she can control what traits or what genes get shared and so i just got the impression that she was choosing certain attributes to transfer it's ridiculous but i'll buy it yeah oh it makes no sense at all no, but not this at all this movie doesn't try to make sense. <laughs> I will say there's a scene right after this where the daughter takes Babs down into the cell with the other patients. And I actually find these scenes genuinely like eerie and disturbing. The sound is really effective. It's like white noise with slowed down inaudible dialogue and lots of reverberating bass. And um, it's, I don't know. It's just insane asylums creep me out to begin with, but I found these scenes really effective. While we're down in this room with, um, you know, getting barraged with a bunch of um, fucked up imagery, who is being roasted on the spit? I think that's Mr. Van Houten. Huh. Lester. Does she actually eat him? I think so. Yeah, I think that's the implication. Oh, yeah. That's how it ends, huh? Yeah. And we skip the part where uh, Dr. Caligari drills into her own head in order to install one of the uh, implants and then injects her grandfather's brain. Doesn't really work out for her. Well, I don't think she manages to do it, right? No, she gets stopped. 
She gets stopped halfway through the process by Mrs. Van Houghton. Houghton. <laughs> and yeah. uh, what does she inject instead? I think she injects the doc- the original Dr. Caligari. She injects into her own head. This is Mrs. Van Houghton. And she injects Dr. Caligari with um, with Mrs. Van Houghton, with her fluid. Okay. So she... There's, there's beca- a lot of fluid swapping going on here. Oh, indeed. Yes. And so Mrs. Van Houghton becomes like the doctor and she takes over the asylum, we see. And then Dr. Caligari becomes like Mrs. Van Houghton and she's now an in, uh, a patient. And that's that's how the movie ends. Everyone is stuck here, presumably forever, and fluid bonded. Yep. And uh, we close on Dr. Caligari saying that her life is unending torment, which is what Mrs. Van Houten had described her life as earlier in the movie. So, yeah, that's the end. Anything else before we get to final thoughts? This is only like an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, it's short, which is good. Because I don't think this is sustainable. Like, I don't think you could do this for for any longer. Really, it's it's impressive they managed to get around um, as long as they do. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the perfect length. All right, give final thoughts and a rating out of four. I appreciate the artistry and effort that went into this. Um, it it's it it is is not easy trying to make something that is so against the grain of normal convention, um, both narratively, physically, mentally, conceptually, um, to, to think this far outside the box normally requires a large amount of drug usage or, or mental illness, but, um, they, they managed to pull it off. This movie is its own very unique animal that uh i i can say i have not seen anything else quite like it um that that said uh this is not for me i i this is definitely for somebody it's for luke i know that if you identify more with luke um when you listen to these episodes then this is something you should probably endeavor to find it's not hard um if you just know where to look like i said earlier um but for me i'm sorry this I did not enjoy watching this. It was not for me. I do like weird shit, but this was too far out there. I need a l- little bit more grounding. Um, I'm also not a big perform like live performance person, and this really just screams like a live performance midnight show, right? Like underground fucking stage show sh- stuff. It, it's I'm sorry, it's not for me. Much like. What was it? Teenage Tupelo? Yeah. Like that That movie was probably like way better than, than I rated it, but it also was not for me. I'm going to put this in the same boat. They can both live together. Um, actually, no, not the same boat. They can both, they can both uh, stay in the same asylum cell together. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go one star. I'm sorry. It ain't for me. That's okay. I'm rating, this, I'm rating this based on my enjoyment, not on some sort of like universal scale of like what this brings to the table. No, that's what we do here. That's what I, I do too. I I, I, do, I do think this is better than Cafe Flesh as a whole. Like I think there's there's more here 
to digest and like analyze and, and, and enjoy for different people, but it ain't for me. I, I do think that's fair. I, I totally understand why someone might not like this. I do like all those things that Leland described, and I'm, I, I don't know, I'm generally an artsy person, I guess, and um, this appeals to me. I will say it's it's not as much fun to me as other movies that I would put in its company. So, like, it's not as fun as Forbidden Zone, right? It's not as fun as Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, if you're into those kinds of movies, this doesn't reach that bar. But if it was playing at my local theater at midnight, would I go see it? Hell yeah. Like, I would love to see this in the theater. Um, so I, I do really think it's enjoyable. I also don't think it's trying to do anything too deep. Like, I don't think there's a lot of meaningful symbolism here the way there is in, like, an El Topo. I think this is just a really idiosyncratic vision that people who are very artsy designer people uh decided to to put this on and play around with the imagery and the ideas of dr caligari and so i think um i think it's totally worth seeing all the performers commit um all the the you know we played some of the dialogue for you so you heard what it sounded like if that appeals to you um then seek it out uh i'm gonna give it three and a half stars so really different ratings on this one but maybe this is something like after multiple viewings maybe it'll grow on me but just one time i'm and then having to like live with what i what i've witnessed uh maybe i just haven't processed the trauma properly all right. Well, if you reconsider in time, let us know. What's probably going to happen is eventually I will want to show this to someone else so they don't think I'm lying to them. And and at that point, that's when I will probably watch it again. This is a movie to show other people or to like put on with a group of friends, I think, just so you can gauge their reactions. Like, I think you learn a lot about people by showing them movies like this. Oh, yeah. You know, this is totally one of those, like, ink blot tests. What did you see here? <laughs> How many <laughs> orgasms did you see? <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect close. Um, we need to consult the Magic 8-Ball and see what our new category is going to be. Are we finally done with horrific experimentation? Yep. So you want to give it a shake? Yeah. Shake, shake. All right. Here are three categories are kidnapping or abduction, evil children, or None convents just not having a great time. None convents just not having a great time? They're just not having a great time in these movies. All right, let's go with that one. All right. Nunsploitation. It's been a while. Fun. All right, folks. So we'll be coming at you with some nunsploitation films. 
Um, I'll have to think about what the best ones are to watch. And of course, uh, would do you want me to get rid of one of the other categories? What was the first one again? Kidnapping or abduction? No, they're fine. Okay. So with that, uh, join us next week to talk about some non-sploitation film. But until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. We will talk to you all next week. Have a good one, everybody.